Well, I'm pumped this morning, honestly, to, I'm, all, I'm always excited to preach, but I think God's been doing something really special uh, these last several weeks, and just kind of over, honestly, I think God's done a lot this year, and I want to take us through a bit of a, a journey today, and really, we have really dedicated. It really kind of kicked off these uh, probably about four or five weeks ago now. If you've been, I'm sure, maybe in and out or things along those lines, uh, four or five Sundays ago, uh, our global senior pastor, Pastor Ashley, came in and delivered this message that I, honestly, it's hard to articulate what I felt sitting in the room, but it was literally just like a paradigm shift. It was just this turning, if you will, that I felt if you were here uh, that morning and his message on being rich in faith, and I want to encourage you, if you were out that Sunday, to at some point in time over the next few days and weeks, to whether it's on a, a car ride that you have by yourself or, or maybe, uh, you know, while you're doing the dishes or whatnot, to throw that message on, because honestly, it was a much needed paradigm shift coming into the end of the year, stepping into what, you know, we only got 26 days left in this calendar year, and we've really made a dedication as a church, if you will, that these last 40 days and now from this point forward, 26 days, that we're going to decide to become rich in faith, rich in faith. And I'm going to unpack that a bit for us and dial us all a bit back in. And how many of you were here last week and got to hear from Pastor Jane? And that was just, I mean, I got so many text messages. I thought about not coming home from Florida. I was like, if things are that good when I'm gone, maybe I'm the hindrance to the move of the spirit, right? And so, you know, I'm sorry the blockage is back this morning, uh, but no, I'm just kidding, right? But uh, Pastor Jane, I was, I was actually watching via that security camera back there a bit as well and making sure you were all on your best behavior. Only got a couple of you I need to talk to you after service, but the rest of you, you did a really great job, and, uh, and really, we've been going on this journey of being, of this thought, if you will, unpacking of, of being rich in faith. Now, what I want to do this morning um, is I want to take us a bit on a, a little bit of a recap so that I can dial us all back in, so that those of you who maybe are jumping in midstream with us over these last several weeks, or maybe you've been in and out, or I know heaven and earth has moved at least 17 times between Sundays, I'm going to dial us back in for this journey of being rich in faith. And I'm going to point us, I'm going to start us out with really the whole verse that's kind of set off this initiative, set off this whole pursuit that we have as a church right now. And it's going to be found in the book of James, chapter 2, verse Five. James chapter 2, verse 5. Now, it's important to remember that James is the little brother of Jesus. Now, how would you like to be Jesus' little brother, right? You know, it's the award ceremony. Who won? Oh, of course, Jesus did, right? You know, and James always got second place, right? And so, and James, I love this, opens this sentence up as only a younger sibling well, how many of you are the youngest or in the tribe? Let me just wave at, wave at me. Youngest in the tribe? Only a couple of you, okay? How many of you are the oldest? Okay, we're not very fond of you. Okay, just want you to know. Uh, but th those of us who are younger, this is, this is probably a sentence that you heard from the youngest sibling in your home a few times. It started with this. Listen to me, right? Like every young sibling has said these words. He says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Rich in faith. Now, we've really begun to unpack this phrase, rich in faith of several different ways. Now, it's always good when we're looking at truths in Scripture to be also to be able to look at the opposite truth as well. In other words, if James tells me that I have the ability to be rich in faith, then it must also be true that I can be poor in faith. I can't be rich in something if I can't also be poor in faith. And so James is sitting here telling us, hasn't God chosen the poor among you to be rich in faith. Oftentimes you read through all of Jesus's life that we read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus often referred to, addressed people, and healed people on the account of their faith. Faith is this substance, right? Scripture says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith is the mechanism in which God uses. It's the currency that unlocks things in the kingdom. That's why we would read also in Scripture that we are saved by grace, meaning it's a gift that God has given us through Jesus, but it comes through the mechanism of faith, right? So we often know, you don't have to really sell people these days 
on the importance of faith. The question is, is what is your faith in, right? It's not a question of do I need faith? It's is my, is my faith positioned in the correct place? And then also, how do I have the ability to grow in faith? How do I have the ability to become rich in faith? Oftentimes when Jesus, once again, was addressing people he came in contact with and often people he performed miracles for, it was never a response to their social or economical status. It had everything to do with the amount of faith that they had. The woman with the issue of blood. He didn't say, hey, you crawled your way here. Congratulations, be healed. He says, no, be, go ahead and leave. Your faith has healed you, right? Constantly, time and time again, Jesus was referring to people, not by the standards of anything in the natural, but only through the currency that God established, and that was faith, right? So we've talked a bunch about stating the case, not just to have faith, but then how do I grow in faith? How do I get more faith, right? It feels like it's this elusive currency where it's like, okay, can you tell me the special prayer that I need to pray? Or can you tell me the person that I need to see to, in order to gain more of this currency, to gain more faith, right? God would say, speaking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he would say to him this phrase, he would say, hey, Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. That we looked at a couple weeks ago. That literally in the Hebrew means I am your paymaster. I am the one who distributes to you this faith that we know Abraham was known for. So we've looked at really over these last several weeks, once again, just dialing us back in, the importance of faith, the value of faith, the currency of faith. We've looked at things like this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, and it is impossible, right, familiar scripture, it is impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. Now, let me pause there just for a commercial break, just for a moment, and tell you that it wasn't that long ago I was driving down the road and I thought about this verse. It's impossible to please God without faith. In which I asked myself this question. What part of my life right now is being run off of my faith? In other words, where is my faith? Is there anything in my life that I can accomplish without faith? What are the things in my life that are only succeeding, only progressing forward because of my faith? Because if there is an absence of faith in my life attached to what I'm doing, that thing that I'm doing is not pleasing to God. Only the things in our lives that are attached to the mechanism of faith can be pleasing to God. Now that's just a free nugget for this second service. I didn't say that in first, right? Let's keep going. It's impossible to please God without faith. And anyone who wants to come to him, watch this now, must believe that God exists. Now notice it doesn't say must believe that God existed. That God has existed. There is a present point that the writer of Hebrews says. He has to come to God and believe that presently that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Now, in the original language, that word sincerely would literally mean like carefully or investigatively seek him. In other words, it's not something I'm doing flippantly, but I've got a track. I've got a course. I've got a plan. I've got, there's a, a target on what I'm pursuing, right? So it's impossible to please God without faith. And that anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who diligently, who investigatively, who sincerely seek him. And we looked at a couple of weeks ago how the reward in seeking God is more than what we're believing for. It is also the deposit of more faith, right? When I have faith to see God move and then God turns and moves in response to my prayer, I don't just receive my response, I then receive a confidence to believe if God did it for something like this, he can also do it for what comes next. Are you with me this morning? And so there's this progression that if I know faith is what unlocks the miraculous, if faith is the currency that God chose to unlock the things of heaven, then I can't just say it's valuable, but I've got to figure out how do I get more of it? How do I grow in faith? And we've also looked at, and I don't have time to bring us through a full recap of this, but in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus would say to his disciples, he would say this. He would say, if you have faith 
And then he would throw this caveat in there that all of us wish wasn't in Scripture because we're all guilty of this. He says, if you have faith, and he says, and you do not doubt, you can do the things you've seen me do, but you can actually do far greater things. And could truth be told, the biggest blockade to our faith is our doubt. It's not, have I formulated the prayer before, but it's have I been so fully convinced in my spirit that God would do it that I have no plan B, that I don't have another course of action. Now, in the natural, that sounds stupid, right? Everything in our natural sense says divide and conquer. Don't put all your money or your assets in the same location. Don't invest everything into the same stock. Don't write everything else contextually in the world we live in says if you sell out to one thing, if that one thing fails, you've got nothing. But Jesus is saying it's not until that you cut all your other options and that I am the only option that you'll truly see the fullness of what I have for you unfold. It's this really difficult thing that, frankly, I don't care how spiritual you are or how many verses you have memorized or tattooed on your body or written on the door frames of your home. You struggle with doubting. All of us do. We have seasons where we doubt more than, ever, uh, more than others. But truth be told, it's the thing that we wrestle with the most. And so we looked at the things that, what are the things that steal our faith? We looked at faith stealers a couple of weeks ago. But really what I want to build our whole thought, whole time around today has to do, it came to me in this verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to read it in just a second. But Pastor Ashley st said a statement five weeks ago that really got me thinking. He says, we think about richness, being rich, oftentimes in the wrong light. We look at it in a quantity, quantitative type of mindset, right? But really, if I am more rich than you are, that what it means is that I have more options than you do, right? If I come across difficult times, but I'm rich... I have more options accessible to me on how I can overcome that obstacle. If I'm poor, I don't have the same options, options, excuse me, as a rich man, which I agree with. And it was a great paradigm shifter to think of the word rich. But then here's what I thought about a step further. Oftentimes, many of us know how to have be rich in faith in a decision, but don't know how to live a life of being rich in faith. We know to have a lot in a moment, but the question isn't can you have great faith in a moment, it's can you live a life of great faith. I'll never forget when we sold our first home. I've never seen so many zeros in my bank account for about 12 hours, y'all. I was rich, I, I screenshotted it, I wanted to remember that day, you know what I mean? Like, this was like, you know, movie, video game, whatever, like money. Like, I was like, I just didn't think these numbers really existed for someone like me. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, you know what I mean? Like, all of a sudden, right? And I was rich for about 12 hours until those funds went from one place to one place to a whole nother place, right? And now the, my bank account ain't seen that many zeros since, you know what I mean? And we are praying them into existence. Come on, somebody. We ignite your faith with me today, all right? And I was really, really rich for about 12 hours. And many of us have lived lives of 12-hour richness in faith where we had great faith for a split second or a split decision or whatever, and that was great, and we accomplished something. But God doesn't want you to have great faith in a moment, but rather wants to develop endurance inside of your faith and longevity inside of your faith so that you can be people of great faith and not have moments of great faith. Are you with me this morning? That is what I believe. So when I think about richness in faith, I don't want a sermon series that pumps your tires. Because my, I don't want you to be rich in faith to close out 2020 strong. I want you to have a richness in faith that doesn't just start with you. It doesn't even end with you. But you pass it on to the generations behind you. That's richness. That's longevity. That is wealth. So if I'm wanting to build wealth, then I've got to understand this principle in, that Paul would write to the church in Philippi. Philippians 1 verse 6. Hang with me. says this. It says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will. Everybody say will. It didn't say that he might. It didn't say that he may. It didn't say that he was going to run the percentages and this half would and this half wouldn't. It says that he who began a good work in you will carry it. Now, let me ask you this. Who's going to carry it? He will. He didn't say that you will carry it. 
He who began a good work in you will have you carry it. He says, no, no, no. He who began a good work in you will carry it, and he'll carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What is he talking about? He's obviously talking about the second coming of Jesus. He's talking about the rapture of the church, all the things that we've talked about a lot this year especially. And can I tell you something? I have had more heartbreaking conversations with people in 2020 than probably the previous 10 years combined. Where I have seen and been privy to conversations with people, and if I'm really, really transparent, I've had these conversations with myself of a desire to opt out, to eject, to quit, to change course, to do something entirely drastically different that completely contradicts everything God has previously said, all because of the pressure and the pain and the intensity of the right now. If there's one thing I've learned in the, in the world that we live in is there's no shortage of people who start things. There's no shortage of ideas. How many of you at somewhere in quarantine thought about 17 different business opportunities that you were gonna pitch on Shark Tank, right? I figured out a way to stretch out the life of toilet paper. I'm telling you, it's gonna be the next million dollar thing, right? Toilet paper shortages no more. I've figured out, right? There are no shortages of people with good ideas. There's no shortages of people who have an entrepreneur business mentality. There's no shortages of people who want to start the next latest, greatest fad or initiative. But there are very, very few people who are actually committed to see something come to completion. We see it everywhere. We see it in every facet of our society. We see it in our church attendance. We see it in our marriages. There's no shortage of people getting married right now, right? A pandemic hit and all of a sudden people are like, I got to find me a spouse because if I'm going to quarantine, I might as well have something to do in quarantine, right? I have people say those things to me. I'm like, what a terrible idea to get married on. There's no shortage of people with the desire to get married or looking for a spouse or whatnot. But what do we also see growing? The number of divorces. Because anybody can make a great decision or a not so great decision in a moment. And God's not trying to get you to be people of momentary great faith. He's not trying just to get you to have great faith in your darkest days but rather he's trying to get you to have a longevity in your faith and to understand that the same one who promised it however many months ago or years ago or decades ago is still the one who intends to complete it. We have to quit treating God like a farmer with a carrot and we're the donkey and thinking that it's just the thing that he's going to entice us with to get us to do a little more. He doesn't operate that way. We often think that God's going to spiritually manipulate us into doing something that we don't want to do. But he who began the good work, and I've seen and heard and I'm currently witnessing so many people who are beginning to hit the eject button midstream, mid-course. Because you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. The most deadly thing about 2020 has not been the coronavirus. And I don't say that to belittle those of you who have been drastically impacted by it your health has or your finance has or you've lost family members, loved ones has. But I will stand here and say the most deadly thing about 2020 was people being shut inside their homes, isolated from one another, left alone to their thoughts to ruminate on things that they should never be ruminating on. And there are people who, are, who have, if they haven't decided it, they've entertained the thought of making a long-term decision and still a short-term season. And they're forgetting that the one who began the good work in you will see it to completion. Can I just stop here for a moment and say this? If you found yourself this year saying, man, I wonder if I really even heard from God. Or maybe you found yourself this year going, you know what? Did, did God really say or was that just me? Can I tell you the place that you can find a did God really say? Genesis, Adam and Eve. What did the serpent say? Did God really say? Did God really say that if you ate of this tree that, and that there's nothing more that the devil has wanted to do to you than to get you to believe in the chaos of 2020 where you think you're seeing clearly and thinking clearly to begin to question things that God has said to you.
Can I tell you something? God never operates in, did I really say? And if there's one thing that the devil's been trying to convince you on, it's the validity that you actually heard from God. Jesus would say, my sheep, what? Know my voice. And we came into 2020 in a new decade and all the pep rally services we had, woo, clear vision. And everybody's like, nobody saw this coming, right? All of us are doubting every prophet we've ever met, right? You know what I mean? How are those spiritual binoculars now there, prophet? You know what I mean? Like, I thought you are supposed to see these things. And in this whole time, what's being challenged? Yeah, it's our faith, but it's the, it's the longevity of it. It's the sustainability of it. It's that lasting nature of it. It's he who began the good work. W will he see it to completion? And so I want us to look at, we, we, I, I kind of made a decision two weeks ago. Listen to me, I kind of made a decision. That sounded real confident. <clears throat> I made a decision, right? <laughs> it's like the man in you. Huh. Um, and we're going to look at and we're going to, Pick apart Hebrews chapter 12. So if you got your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have your Bibles, shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. Put your um, eyelids on the screen, um, and we're going to read through Hebrews chapter 12. And I promise y'all, we're going to get past three verses today, okay? <laughs> Two weeks ago, I was like, we're going to study Hebrews chapter 12, and I made it through three verses, y'all. And, and, and we, we skated on that third verse, right? We really built the whole morning around two verses. I'm going to dial us back in to this chapter, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm gonna read through the first three verses and then we're gonna pick up, and I promise you, we're gonna make it y'all all the way to verse 13 today, okay? All the way to verse 13 today in Hebrews chapter 12. Now it's important to remember a few things in this. I, I, I set you up with all of that context so that you can understand this passage of scripture correctly. There's something you must know, you, a lot of you know this, but you need to be reminded about this, that when the writers of the Bible wrote these letters or accounts or records of these things taking place. They did not have chapters. They didn't say, all right, chapter 12, verse 1. This seems like a good place to start a new thought, right? This was just continual thought and indentation that they put inside of the text. It wasn't until after the Bible was then translated and put into book form and then dispersed throughout the nations that we've seen for now thousands of years that the translators are the ones who put in all your little subnotes. Right? So, you know, Paul was not like, how to get through a hard day, chapter one. Right? He didn't write those things. He just wrote the letter. Right? And so it's important to know that. Here's why I say this. It's because in Hebrews chapter 12, depending on what translation of the Bible that you read, my translation that I typically read from and preach from uh, in the NLT calls Hebrews 12, God's discipline proves his love, right? And that's like, let's skip that chapter, right? You know what I mean? And, and, and at times, the, these translators of the Bible, they're, they're, trying, they're taking best educated guesses. But you need to understand this about where we are in Scripture. The book of Hebrews is written to a Hebrew people that are, are literally so weary in the middle season. They're so weary in the, they were really excited in the he who began a good work, but they're beginning to doubt that this is ever going to come to completion. So they're thinking about hitting the eject button. They're thinking about, you know what, that whole law-based living, religious mentality kind of deal, like that actually wasn't so bad. Like let's go to the things that actually we, we should grow past. So let's, let's, what they're considering abandoning faith altogether. Like do we really need faith? Do, is it really that crucial, right? They're thinking about ejecting. So the writer of Hebrews all throughout the first 11 chapters is, is literally writing this as reminders, as encouragement. Hebrews chapter 10, which Pastor Jane preached from last week, is all about what? Don't throw away your confidence. Don't neglect meeting together. All, all of these really like encouraging them to not isolate, but to stay together and to remain confident in what they know to be true. And then Hebrews chapter 11 is called the, the heroes of faith chapter, right? Where just a second ago, we read that verse. It's impossible to please God without faith. And then he begins to say, hey, here's all the people who lived lives of faith. It was by faith that Noah built the ark. And it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. It was by faith that Rahab have um, hid the spies, all of these things, building this case for faith. And then he get us, gets us to Hebrews chapter 12, which says this. It says, therefore, after making this whole stating a case of faith, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses. Now, if you've got your Bibles or taken notes, circle or underline that word witnesses, because it's got a double meaning that we're going to look at in a moment. A huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Now, I don't have time to recap 
in depth these verses for us. But I want you to notice the writer of Hebrews differentiates the thought here. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Secondarily, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, right? And we looked at two weeks ago identifying what is the weight that is slowing us down. That it's not sin, right? But they are things that are preventing us. Maybe the weight is in our mind, right? It's our insecurity. Maybe it's actually tangible relationships with people from our past that are literally pulling us back into our past and preventing us from moving forward into what God has, right? We looked at every, every angle of this scripture. What are the areas of comfortability, right? How do I put on weight, right? Oftentimes is what? Comfort eating. I'm trying to get to a place where I get comfortable, right? But it's not until I shed my willingness to be comfort, comforted in a moment that I can really progressively move forward, right? So the weight slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And we looked at that word easily trips us up, meaning it's easily avoidable. Meaning that there's sin that you and I, you and I have just learned to live with, right? That we don't really want God to address. We're really hoping that his grace just kind of just turns a blind eye to, and we just kind of casually, secretly, right? Secretly indulge, right? And into those things, right? So the easily avoidable sin. And then it says this, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us, right? Once again, he's bringing us through a progression. So we're surrounded, but I need you to do a few things. I need you to address, the, I need you to strip the weight off. I need you to address the sin so that you can run with endurance. Then verse two says this, how do we do it? We do it by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The champion who, watch this, initiates and perfects our faith. You could also say the one who started the good work and the one who's going to complete the good work, right? The champion who initiates and perfects, the author and the finisher of our faith. Then he says this, because of the joy, because of the joy awaiting him, he, speaking of Jesus, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility that he endured from sinful people and you won't become weary and give up, right? So here's a progression that the writer of Hebrews has given us. He's talked about faith, encouraging people not to lose faith, reminding them of foundational principles of who Jesus is. And he says, look, develop this endurance in your faith, develop this strength, have this longevity. The first things you need to do is you need to deal with the weight that's slowing you down, the things that you've just grown comfortable and accustomed to that you need to shake off to move forward. You need to deal with the sin that's tripping you up. You need to learn to run again, but don't just run aimlessly. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes. That's what I said earlier in worship, right? God is after our attention, our focus, our devotion, our availability. So he's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. And then when doing so, think about the things that Jesus has overcome. And when you're thinking about those things, it will continue to encourage you to run. Are you with me this morning? Then he says this. After all, here's a wonderful dose of reality that the writer of Hebrews gives these people. He says, after all, you have not yet, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. In other words, he's going, listen, I know you think things are rough. And I know you're facing some pressure and some insecurity and some persecution or whatever. But hey, you're alive. <laughs> you ain't dead yet, right? You know, like, here's, let's just count our blessings for a moment. You still got all your fingers and toes from your head to your elbows, right? All the things and in between. And you've got breath in your lungs. And let me just inform you that there are people around the world who are enduring much more persecution and who are actually losing their lives for their faith. And so I know it's really inconvenient that your rhythms and routines and your coffee isn't made the right way, but let's put it in, in perspective of you're still alive, right? It's a great sobering statement that he makes because these Christians at this time were discouraged because in this day that they're living in, they're facing significant social and economic persecution. Have you felt like you faced in 2020 some social or economic persecution? That's it. So the, the Hebrew people, these Jewish Christians, excuse me, are literally facing their own version of all 2020 has broken out. And they are beginning to have a temper tantrum, right? They are beginning to have a moment of going, I think I'm just going to hit the eject button. Right? Then verse 5 says this. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, 
my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? You know what I mean? Just for this real encouraging message. Don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. Oh, thank you, Sarah. May I have another? Okay. And he pin finishes, no, punishes each one he accepts as his child. And as you endure this divine discipline, woo, thank you, Jesus, right? This divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? I can think of a couple. Okay, and if God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, then it means that you're illegitimate and you're not really his children at all. And since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It is painful. Yes, it is. All right. But afterward... There will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Now that wonderful, encouraging chunk of scripture for you, let's break it down. Let's break it down once again in the context of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach us. This is all through the lens of what? Faith. But not just through the lens of faith. He is trying to encourage people to not opt out, to not eject, to not run, to not abort the mission, to understand that he who began it will be the one who will see it to completion. And so he says, listen, I, we've got to develop, develop now a longevity, a maturity in our faith. So address the weight, deal with the sin, fix your eyes, think about what Jesus has done. But then he's saying, listen, you're going to endure times that feel like discipline that feel like correction, that feel like punishment. And he throws it all through the lens of parenting. Now, there's this wonderful phase of life that we're in, Lindsay and I are in, with our five-year-old mess of a daughter, right? She's amazing when I say mess. She's a beautiful mess, you know what I mean? Yes, she is. And um, she has got all the sass, all the spunk. Uh, she's the child that when you tell her not to do something, she'll make sure you're watching her and then do it, right? You know what I mean? Um, you know, when I say I'm going to spank your butt, she says, well, how many times, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. You know, have some sympathy on the preacher, okay? You know what I mean? Now, we believe spare the rod, spoil the child, all right? Let me just go ahead and say that, all right? And let's just keep moving, okay? And so it's been a fun age so far, right? Fun is relative. I won't tell you my thoughts on the word fun, but fun is relative and um, a fun age of all the sass, all the spunk, all the things, right? And recently the, the tug of war at home has all been about word choices, right? And it's always fun when kids go back to school. Um, it's always really fun when kids were trapped at home with their parents for like six months and God only knows what they heard mom and dad say that they don't normally hear mom and dad say, right? And then they're never going to say it to mom and dad. They're going to say it to their friends first, gauge it there before they move on to adults, right? So who knows what they've, she's heard at school? Who knows what she's heard at, in television or, or whatnot and things along those lines. And let's just say I'll spare you the words that are being thrown around our house, but they're just not uplifting, righteous, Christian and holy words, okay, that we're having to deal with our five-year-old on. And so recently we sat her down and we said, listen, let's, let's just, we're going to talk about these words. We're going to talk about what they are. We're going to talk about why they're inappropriate. And, and she is her father's child. And we've always just had this unique bond, her and I. We're probably, we probably have the tightest bond in this phase of life. She's daddy's girl, right? And um, she, like me, will often do something that she knows she's not supposed to do, but she'll put it in the package of something humorous and a joke and think that if we can get the, appro the appropriate party to laugh, then we get away scot-free. You know what I mean? Like, and so like, if I'm ever going to say something that I know is going to test the waters, I do it in a joke, right? And then that way I just Chalk it up as to never say that again, or there's a win on the board, right? And so she will then say things that she knows she's not supposed to say, but she will package it in the area of comedic humor. And so we had to say, listen, I understand that daddy laughed when you said that word because it was hilarious, but <laughs> these things are like, <laughs> these are all the challenges of parenting, right? You need to understand that this is not acceptable and you will be disciplined for this continual use of language until you understand so minutes go by, hours go by, and the same words are flying out. And so whether it's the, you know, the, the, 
the reprimanding via uh, a spanking or it's a it's grounding or it's a taking away or it's time out she knows from mom and dad listen it don't matter if it's funny or it's not funny you're going to get in trouble and her comeback because she can burst into a puddle of tears like on cue, right, she's going to be, she's going to make dad and mom a lot of money one day, I hope, uh, or at least not forget about mom and dad, you know, when she's big and famous. And, um, and her response will be this, but I forgot, I just keep forgetting, right? I said, okay, well, actually discipline is there to bring all things into remembrance, right? And so we are one way or the other, we are going to remember that these things are not acceptable. We're not going to say these things and we're going to continually, there's going to be disciplinary action, there's going to be punishment, and it has nothing to do about me invoking my anger on you as a child, but because I'm trying to train, develop, and mature you in a way to live a life that is honoring and respectable, and you're going to see things exceed in life, right? And so the writer of Hebrews is saying this, just like your parents, as dysfunctional as they were, were actually doing everything out of not really anger, but really rather trying to mature you and develop you, so does God in the area of developing maturity in your faith and endurance in your faith, that there are going to be times where you are reaping, imagine this, the consequences of your own actions. But guess what? That God is the God in all things, above all things, and will be with you through all things. And you need to understand that if God is sending it or God is allowing it, he is able to make it all work together for the good so that you have a maturity and an endurance and a development in your faith because God doesn't want to see one mistake turn into a lifetime of mistakes, but rather it turned into a lesson to learn so that you can live a fruitful life. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, you need to understand that you have a responsibility of shedding weight, addressing sin, and fixing your eyes, but you need to understand that your heavenly Father is going to articulate things in your life or allow things in your life that may come across as discipline, but it's never out of anger, it's always out of training. It's always out of wanting to develop what? Because he knows, James would say in James chapter 1, that if we develop endurance in our faith and longevity in our faith, he would use these words, that we would become perfect and complete and not deficient in any way. Now, I'm never going to really receive completion or perfection until I enter heaven. But he's saying all along the way, God is trying to develop me into maturity in my faith so that I don't abort the mission in the middle. That I am reminded that he who began it will be the one to see it and carry it through to the end. It was like recently, I say recently, it was yesterday. I don't really post much on social media anymore. It's just... It's, it just turned into my newspaper, right? You know what I mean? Or the thing you do when you're on the toilet, right? You know what I mean? It's like, that's, what new, that's pretty much what social media is, right? I, I saw a thing recently this year that said, you know, uh, don't, don't uh, you know, put too much value in your number of likes. Most of them came from people sitting on the toilet, right? You know what I mean? And you're just like, oh, when you think about it that way, you're like, gee, thanks. Um, there for you in, my, in your time of need. And um, so I recently, I, I posted something on social media and just talked about just the craziness of the year. Just got a little personal, got a little vulnerable or whatever, just about things I, uh, that just wrestles and lessons that I've learned. And, and I talked about, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to dance in the rain, right? I can't control in the rain, can't control when the rain comes or when things move or whatnot. I can always control my response, right? And it's always funny, and this is also part of the reason why I don't post a lot of things, because everybody thinks like, oh, man, I, it must be about this, or he must be going through a really dark time. So I get all the praying for you, don't give up, you know, with your pastor, you know, like all these things. And I'm like, you guys, right? You know, like, it's, uh, thanks for the encouraging words. I appreciate it. But not my intent. I was hoping just to encourage somebody who may be scared to put words to what they're feeling. And I, late last night, I'm putting the final touches on my message uh, for you this morning, and I get a text message from a local pastor, a good friend of mine who I catch up with from time to time. And he said, read your post, I'm with you, and it sounds like God's moving, dot, 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 in a good way. And I stopped, I kind of laughed, and I responded. I said, not to sound spiritual, but there's no way that God moves that isn't good. I said, God in and of himself is good. So anything that he does or anything that he allows in turn is good. It's for our, our um, you know, we benefit from what God does and moves. It is who he is. It, God in and of himself is good. So to be anything other than good means that he in turn isn't God. And the question isn't really is what's happening in my life a good thing. 
The question is, do I have the perspective to see how God is turning this around for good in me? And when she went, dang, right? <laughs> you know? And I said, there's your sermonette for the evening and good night, <laughs> right? And, um, but the truth be told, when I look at the mechanism of 2020, when I look at the, the, the means of the coronavirus, right? There's people out there, God said coronavirus has judgment on the land. No, he didn't. He unleashed his judgment on his son Jesus so that he didn't have to unleash judgment on you. And I'm not, I'm not the believer that God sent the coronavirus, but here's one thing I will tell you is that he's using it. He's using it to reveal things. He's using it to address things. And can I tell you what he's really trying to do is he's actually trying to use it to develop a maturity and an endurance inside of a, a church, inside of a, a people group, and inside of people who maybe faith was actually wafer thin, was actually very short term. Maybe just maybe God, once again, didn't send it, but maybe just maybe he's using it to grow us, to mature us, to develop us. Can I even dare say, in a roundabout way, discipline us? trying to mold us into ultimately what he has lying ahead because he understands. Can I tell you something? The mission of Jesus is greater than your brain can comprehend. It's bigger. I don't care how spiritual you are, how holy you are. It doesn't matter. It is bigger than your mind can physically comprehend. Scripture says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So i got to understand that even as big and intimidating and overwhelming as it is when I try to wrap my brain around the mission of Jesus Christ on the earth, it's even bigger than that. And Jesus understands because he's outside of time. He understands what's coming. He understands that the things that lie ahead of us are actually bigger than we think they are, both positively and it could be in an intimidating nature. And could it be that this whole year that we thought was going to be the genesis of all these, you know, money was going to rain from the sky, gold dust would happen in all of our church services, Dead bodies were going to be raised. All these things were going to happen. Maybe, just maybe, God was saying, you're not ready for that. And what I'm actually trying to do in and through you in this season and through the things that are happening to your life and the, and the persecution that you're, you're feeling even in the most free country in the world is actually all preparation. It's all I'm trying to develop not just great people who can make a decision of great faith, but rather who can live lives of sustaining, enduring, lasting faith. Are you with me this morning? I close with this. Ban, you can come save the preacher. Last two verses, so I told you I'd get to verse 13. I've got to be a man of my word. Next week, I promise, we're going to finish Hebrews 12, okay? Hebrews 12 will be finished next week. My dad always said the greatest thing about pastoring is part two. <laughs> she didn't have to get it all out in the first try. I've never been more appreciative of that than these days. Verse 12 of Hebrews 12. Are you getting anything out of this? Okay. I've already asked you that six times, so I just need the reassurance. Verse 12 says this, so take a new grip. Take a new grip. If you've got your Bibles, underline that, circle that. Take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Watch this. So that those, if you have a Bible, underline the word those. I'm going to come back to that. So that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Take a new grip. With the tired hands, strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Many of you who've been part of our regular church family and with us particularly this year know that it's been an eventful year for me in the area of vehicles. <laughs> I've gotten two car crashes this year, totaling cars. First one walked away without a problem. The second one that I was in over the summer lady ran a light and t-boned her and all this all the fun things and I broke my thumb many of you remember I was wearing a, a I was wrapped up for a while and then I was in a brace for a while and and I've pretty much for the most part made a full recovery I actually still have if I move my thumb a certain direction it causes some pain and the, the doctors have given me the wonderful news of well you may just have to live with it <laughs> and you get paid how much you know um, and I remember when that happened, it happened right when I had started this new initiative of going to the gym. And I was like, you know what? I'm what they call skinny fat, right? Everybody's like, you know, you're so skinny and you're everything, right, right, you know? And I'm like, yeah, but I get winded walking up the steps, you know what I mean? Like, just, just because that doesn't mean I'm in shape. So, you know, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get in shape. I started getting winded when I was wrestling my kids. I'm like, okay, I'm too young for this. I gotta get in the gym. So I started working out, and it was literally, I'm just starting to hit a groove. I'm just starting to gain, gain some weight and all those type of things. I get in a car crash, and I can't, 
work out really. You know, I could do leg day, but who wants to do a week worth of leg day? No thanks, right? You know what I mean? So I had to go through that time. And I remember my first day back in the gym. I went over and I'm like, well, I haven't been able to, you know, hold any barbells or do any bench press, you know what I mean, uh, in a while. So I'm going to go and I'm going to get on the bench press. So I get on the bench press and, you know, don't let these layers fool you, you know what I mean? And um, there I was and I, and I grabbed the barbell and I stacked the weight on there. And as soon as I grabbed the barbell, I realized something didn't feel right. I go to lift the weight off the bar and immediately I had to put the weight back down because I was getting pain in my hand around my thumb. Because we do this wonderful, you know, just manly thing when we grab anything that we want to, like, prove ourselves on. We grip it, like, really hard, right? We feel like if we grip the weight harder, it'll all of a sudden become lighter. I don't know why we're so stupid as men, but we are. So I just realized, you know what? It didn't actually have as much to do with how hard I was gripping the weight, although that didn't help. But I realized that my thumb, when, I would, when it would receive weight kind of in this webbing, would hurt. It's like, oh, man, I guess I'm never just going to be the... You know, the guy who just can't do bench press, sir. And a friend of mine who's working out with me, and he goes, do you normally hold, hold the barbell like that? I said, yeah. He goes, just, just move your thumb. Just like, just slide it from around to just kind of along the bar there. And he goes, that's actually how you, it's actually the right technique to do. But um, I'm not going to dwell on that. Let's just go ahead and fix that and, and do it. And I picked the weight off the bar, and I began to do the workout. And it was, it was funny. The weight didn't change. But my ability to handle the weight had to do with how I was holding it. And when I applied the right grip to the weight, see, it wasn't that the weight was too heavy. I was just wearing it the wrong way. I was just trying to carry it the wrong way. And I wonder if the thing that's brought you some soreness, some pain, maybe the thing that has rested on an old offense or injury it's not because you're carrying the wrong weight. It's that you're trying to hold it the wrong way. I think to Matthew, it's um, Matthew 11. Right? Matthew 11, Jesus speaking, he says what? He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I did a whole four-week series on this passage of Scripture about a year ago. And I remember hearing finding out this thing I never found in scripture before. Never understood what yoke is easy meant. So one day I said, I'm going to figure out what the heck is Jesus talking about, about an easy yoke? Because I like my eggs over hard. You know what I mean? But like, why is he like his with the easy yoke? That word easy literally means this. It means custom fit. That literally the, it's the image of these two oxen and the yoke is what they put on, on the oxen that they would attach to another oxen, right? And they would begin to plow the field. They'd begin to turn things around. And the thought process was, if I was going to get the most out of this oxen, that I couldn't just grab the yoke of the previous generation. I couldn't just grab the, the old yoke and put it on there and then hope for the best. But it's that they would take time and they would custom fit the yoke based on how that oxen was built. Because they understood that the weight was heavy. But if I custom fit it to how this thing is made, how this oxen is built, he won't be thinking about how heavy the weight is because he'll be wearing the right weight the right way. And they understood that the key to success, the key to productivity in that time wasn't about throwing something that was just universally fit, but was to take time. And the tailor would take time to custom fit it. And similarly, God has given you weight that frankly, it is too hard for you to carry. It is too heavy for you. Because if it wasn't, you wouldn't have any need of Jesus. And God's never going to give you or design you a life that makes him not needed. So you're going to have weight that's too heavy. And my question to you this morning is after we've addressed the weight that's slowing us down, after we've tended to the sin that's so easily tripping us up, and as we've fixed our eyes on Jesus, and as we've taken on the perspective that no matter if God's sending it or God's allowing it, he's using it to develop me, that maybe, just maybe, that I can take a new grip, realize that the weight's not the problem, Maybe it's just the way that I'm carrying it. And therefore, I strengthen my hands. I strengthen my knees. I mark out not an aimless path, but a straight path. And then he says this, and I promise I'm done. It's like three closings. Here's the third one. He says, so that those, put that scripture back up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13. It says, so that those, or I can find it if they're not ready in the back. 
He says, so that those who are weak and lame will not fall, but they'll become strong. What was Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, that yeah, there's people in heaven that are hoping for the best, but can I tell you something? Grandma's not watching your every step. She's so enamored with the person of Jesus. She knows that Jesus has you under control. She loves you, but can I tell you something? She's hoping for the best, but she can't keep her eyes off Jesus. And if she watched your every step, she would face maybe some heartache or some bad decisions that you'd make. And guess what? There's no pain in heaven. There's no sorrow in heaven. So yeah, are they cheering us on and hoping us for the best? Without a doubt. But the ones who are really watching us are the people who are around us. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, on this progression of endurance in your faith, it's not just a ticket so that you may live lasting and fruitful lives, but so that those around you can be healed as well. That your life is an example. It's a testimony. It's a, it is the marking of this is what a life with Jesus, trusting him, looks like. So God doesn't just want you to have momentary richness of faith for those 12 hours, but rather wants to develop a longevity, an endurance, a maturity in your faith, if you'll allow it, if you'll allow it. My prayer on this message today is this. I understand it doesn't get a whole lot of standing ovations and high fives, and it's not a pep rally type service. It's not my intent. When we engraft God's word in our heart, scripture says what? I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. The scripture isn't just something to read and to meditate on or even just to say out loud. But my prayer today is that as we've walked through verse by verse, surprisingly made it through 13 verses, that it could be heart surgery. I don't want you to live in great faith in December. I want you to live a life of great faith. I want you to have great faith in just your marriage. I want your kids and their marriage and their, and their kids and their marriage to have great faith. And if God can get it to you, he can get it to the generation behind you. If he can get it through you, he can get it to the people around you. So 26 days of rich in faith, it's just where we're going to go for a concentrated effort on it. But if we engraft this in our heart and allow heart surgery to take place, I'm telling you, there's no season, no pandemic, no disappointment, no mistake that could cripple you or alter your course because we've got something deeper that we built our lives on. Can I pray for you this morning? Just as we close, Father, we love you. I thank you for every person in this room. And God, I thank you. Just that image you gave me during the first service and again now of just the great physician. We often think of the great physician as the one who heals us. But you're also the one who operates on us spiritually. And God, as you've, I believe, been taking your word and weaving it into the innermost parts of our heart. Not so that we can just get through a Sunday. Not so that we can get through the last 26 of a very, 26 days of a very challenging year. But rather, I believe that through your word today, you've been adding years onto our life. Years onto our faith. Longevity into our lives. God, may we not be people who can be brilliant in a moment, but who can be consistent in trusting you. We can live a life of dependence, a life of faith, a life of alignment. And I pray, would you take this word today? Would it be a seed that bears forth much fruit, lasting fruit in our lives and in the lives of those around us? Forever change us through your word, God. We thank you for operating on us today. We honor you and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Come on, can we just thank God for what he's done?